This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, part two of our conversation with Alicia Aiken, who, for people not familiar with this podcast, is our host. In the first part of our conversation, Lish talked about being a full-time nonprofit lawyer, one who was initially skeptical about pro bono lawyers, but eventually embraced the possibilities of pro bono programs that are designed well and attend to the needs of clients, legal aid, and volunteer lawyers. In this second part of the conversation, Lish is very open about her experiences as a pro bono volunteer after she left legal aid, including the times when she wasn't volunteering at all. My name's Daniel Pinitz, and I'm a producer at PLI. And if you haven't heard part one, you can go back and listen to that episode at any time. Do you want to sort of talk about your experiences going from legal aid after you left legal aid into into your consultant sure. work? Um, so about five years ago, um, I had been doing um, national um, policy work on issues of confidentiality and privacy for domestic violence, sexual violence um, victims and crime victims. And uh, and that had been a part time work um, on the side while also being a full time director of training, client support services and pro bono. And so I decided to actually do that full time to be a, a national policy technical assistance trainer on these issues and um well i don't think i thought about what my pro bono work would be at all when i did it i i just i made the jump and i wasn't again like if if i like doing something i'll often do it for free and i think for me that has been the biggest jump of becoming a consultant is i had to learn to say my work has value i will ask to be paid because otherwise I can't do the work. And if you think you want this work done and you want it done by me, then we actually have to pay me. So It's a novel idea. Yeah. Well, I, but it was really hard because <laughs> remember, I'd been a legal aid lawyer forever. So I got a salary. It was predetermined. We were unionized. The union decided what my salary was. I wasn't negotiating about it. And, and then I never collected money from my clients ever, never, never. So I never negotiated what I would be paid for anything. So it was a pretty big shift when I became a consultant. And then I was very aware of the fact that I had been doing a lot of training and policy work and technical assistance as a legal aid expert. And that as a consultant, there were a lot of people who I knew and loved who would expect that I would continue doing that for them for free. So I think my initial feeling about pro bono when I first became a full-time consultant was that pro bono could lead me down a path of not getting paid for my work. And then it was going to be very hard to figure out what was my core work versus what was my um, pro bono work. And so I am ashamed to say my solution to that was just not to do pro bono work for a while. It was a big deal to suddenly go from being a non-profiteer <laughs> for my entire career to running a business. And I had to figure out what that meant and looked like. And so that was a little scary and a little overwhelming. And I think I just avoided thinking about pro bono for a long time. Like it was just an avoidance technique to be like, oh, bleh. later, you know, and then suddenly later yeah. was a year later and I was filling out my bar renewal 
form. And in Illinois, there is a question, no consequences of any sort to how you answer the question. But there was a question that said, how much pro bono have you done this year? And I, the lifelong (laughs) social justice lawyer, had to answer the question zero. And it it almost made me cry. I was so ashamed and um, appalled at myself. And I was like, I have got to do some pro bono. Like, I just have to. And so then I had to think, okay, well, then what? Like, what kind of pro bono would I do? And that, when I was a nonprofit legal aid lawyer, I always thought, just do it. Like, there's a million different ways to do it. Just do it. Not that hard. Um, You know, we're setting up all these programs to support you and you've manuals and trainings. Just pick one. Um, (laughs) And and I'm here to say it was way more complicated than I ever thought it would be. And this is somebody I, I, I stayed in the same town. I had all the connections. I knew all the people. I was a generalist lawyer in legal aid. Like I had a pretty broad swath of legal aid expertise. But every time I thought about doing one of them, I would be like, but I'm alone. I don't have anyone else in my office. If there's a court date, I travel like half the year. Um, What if they schedule a date and I'm not in town and I have to fight to change the date? Uh, What if it's a new courthouse that I'm not used to? That makes me feel nervous. What if I make a mistake? Oh, I don't have all my forms. You know, I had all the forms on my computer at Legal Aid. I don't have all the forms. That makes me feel nervous and scared. It was just a lot. It was like a cumulative effect of multiple things. It just kept putting me off. And then I got a phone call from someone I knew in the community, and they said, we've got a case. It's a domestic violence custody case. You know the judge. Will you do it? And I felt like I was going to throw up (laughs) because it's hard to do those cases. It is traumatic. Do you mean that you just felt like anxiety at the prospect of even taking the case? I felt anxiety at the prospect of of the client meetings, of hearing about the violence, at worrying about whether I was doing it right. Um, I, I just, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so that was a moment that I would never have thought. I, was, I mean, I we should think about whether I use this. But as a consultant, I do technical assistance to frontline domestic violence lawyers and advocates and shelters and crisis lines every single day. Like this is my bread and butter, what I do. But the thought of going back into that role of handling a case directly for a trauma survivor, when somebody just straight up said, we have a good case, you know me, you trust me, will you take this case? I was like, no. I have just decided that that is not what my pro bono is going to be. Right. And was that a was that a good decision that you made? Or just saying, look, I know my limits. I know that I can't, that I'm just not in a space right now. I have to say no, but this is the right decision at the time. The right decision. That's the best way to put it. It was the, okay. it was the right decision. I, I haven't felt like changing it. Yeah, it was the right decision. And I do have some guilt because it means... There's cases where people are struggling to get a lawyer that I do have the competency to do, but I still think it's the right thing not to do them as my pro bono. It seems like there's a lot of, you know, maybe conversations you have to have with yourself as and, and determining whether or not you can actually take on something like this for whatever reason, whether it's the practice area, whether it's a lot of the emotional stuff that goes along with it having that conversation with yourself and, and being real. It seems like a really important 
part, right? Like a pro bono lawyer who has not been doing this their entire life. How do lawyers get all of that information to make that decision that you made? I think it's a really interesting question. Well, one thing I would say, and I say this to law students all the time, just try a lot of different things in law school. You know, do a clinic for an area of law that you never thought, that you don't think you'd ever want to do. Because if you do a clinic, you've got enormous amounts of support from your professor. Um, You're really going to be taken care of when you do it. And you can see what that feels like. Uh, For your summer job, do different things. Um, Do an externship. So whatever, like try different stuff. So... Um, there's a lot more opportunities in law school for people to try out pro bono things and see how it feels to do it once. That's what students in law school can do to learn their pro bono personality. But how can practicing attorneys explore pro bono to find out what is a good fit? I think clinics, I mean, there is a reason why clinics are a really popular model because you're you are making a smaller ask of lawyers and you can have them come in and do a clinic and that is some exposure to the subject matter area and the experiences of the clients in that area and and then if you do a 2 hour clinic and you come out of it and you think to yourself I cannot I'm just not in a space where I can listen to those stories. It's too much. It's too hard. And and I have had in a case that went differently from how we thought it was going to be. And I gave a lawyer, a pro bono lawyer, the opportunity to withdraw because it had become traumatic and it had become difficult. And she took me up on it. She said, this is not what I signed up for. And I, I can't. I can't do this. And I respect her for knowing that and doing it. So I think clinics are a good place to get a a time-bound exposure to the topic and to the area and to the clients and then see how that feels because then you can say if somebody's doing a clinic at an issue then they've probably got a program for you to do more in-depth work on the issue including if you really connect with a client who you meet at the clinic you can say if there's more work to be done for that person I want to do the work for that person. Uh, right. And I think it would be relative. My situation was relatively unusual that I spent 15 years doing a thing that I believed in very deeply. But and I often say, like, you know, I, I'm full, like I full up here. <laughs> I think <Right. laughs> part of the reason it was a moment where I realized part of the reason I had gone into consulting was because I was full up and, and I needed some distance from the experience of being really in the center of the trauma around domestic violence litigation, which is not to say I'm discouraging any pro bono from doing that work. And I think everybody should understand it's intense. Um, You know, it's as intense as helping people at the border. It's as intense as doing death penalty work. There's a lot of areas of pro bono that are extraordinarily important. And we need empathetic, you know, diligent, smart people to work on it. But... um, But you shouldn't sign up for it if you're like, I'm not in a space where I can do this level of intensity. Okay, so then so then you didn't do that case. Then what happened? So it it prompted me to say, well, okay, if not that, I'm going to allow myself to make that decision. You're not going to do literally the thing you went to law school to do that you developed a specialty in. You're going to say you won't do it. Then what else? Because you got to do something. 
Nothing is not an option. So then I went back to what were the things that I did at legal aid and um, unemployment compensation cases was an, always an area that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. It felt like I made a difference. It was intellectually engaging. It did not feel traumatic. It was actually my go-to, like what I did for fun. <laughs> I'm using air quotes at work. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to work on my unemployment case. <laughs> So I decided that unemployment compensation was probably a really good place for me to do pro bono uh, because those were cases I enjoyed working in. And they and there aren't opposing counsel phone calls, not a thing you do in that work. And um, it's a very kind of time-defined activity that I could take one, do it, wrap it up, and then decide if I had capacity to take another one or not. And so I got on a like pro bono distribution list and there was an uh, an unemployment compensation appeal. And I like went after that one. I was like that. I want to do that. I want to do appellate work. I want to write. I want to do unemployment. I'm going to start with a transcript. <laughs> and that was a very frustrating experience that put me off of pro bono for another year. And some of what I'm doing is revealing my weaknesses, like how easy it was to put me off of pro bono. Um, but but that I'm learning that that's what it's like for other folks, other folks who 10 years ago, I would have been like, get off your butt and do it. Now I'm like, I oh, know it's complicated. It's and it's surprisingly easy to knock you off track. Um, so my frustration with the unemployment appeal I did um, was that <laughs> the case came in from an expert and I looked at it and I said, I don't do these cases as much as I used to, but I don't actually think this is a good case. And the expert said, no, it's a great case. We won. And I was like, hmm. oh, okay, I must be missing something. <laughs> and, right. um, and so um, without getting into too much detail, essentially what happened is, I don't know, I was working on the brief and I talked to the expert and I said, when I look at this case, I don't think it's a, I actually don't think we should have won. But I do think if we got a new hearing, we could win the new hearing. We at least have a good chance of winning a new hearing. And that's called a remand. I said, but what happens to the client if I, if I argue for and get a new hearing? And the expert said to me, oh, the client has already been paid all of their unemployment benefits. And they cannot be taken away. So... Even if you lose the appeal, the client still gets all the money and nothing changes. And I was livid. I was like, then why am I spending all this time researching and writing a brief that I can be proud of when it will literally have zero impact on the client's life? Zero. I was so mad. Right. I'm still mad. I'm still mad. I was like, <laughs> What a colossal waste of my time. Right. I mean, probably a, a lot of people's times now, cumulatively. And I was so angry. Hmm. Finished the brief because I had made a promise to do it and an ethical responsibility. Lost the case. <laughs> hmm. And the judge wrote a decision that said basically the exact same thing I thought the first time I looked at the case. I just think it didn't occur to them that they should say to me up front, we have a case. We won below. We want to protect the win. But if we lose, it changes nothing for the client. 
We want you to know that before you decide whether to take the case. Because I would have right. said no. I would have said I'm not even going to look at the transcript. Send me one where the client needs me. At the end of the day, for me, the only thing that matters is the experience of the clients that we are telling ourselves we are here to serve. Because for me, it's about that client relationship, which is the reason why I said no to doing a domestic violence custody case, because I knew how much that client relationship would matter. And I didn't have the resources to bring to the relationship at that time. And I don't think I have them now. And we'll see. Maybe a year or two from now, I will. Um, but if I can't bring the right, right resources to the client relationship, then I'm not going to do the case. Um, so some of it's about knowing your own personality and knowing what drives you and then looking for opportunities that meet what drives you. Now, you may have noticed that Lish still hasn't told us what her niche was. She has a theory about how to find it, but where did she ultimately land? Turns out the unique 2020 combination of a pandemic, an unemployment crisis, and a canceled travel schedule finally helped her get focused on how to best use her legal aid expertise for good as a pro bono. So where does that bring you to today then? Ah, where, well, where, where are you at now? Okay, so, yeah. so right before the pandemic, um, I had another year where I had to fill out a form and say I had done zero or close to zero pro bono. And again, I felt shame, I felt guilt, I felt frustration. I was like, must fix this now. And then I got an email that in my town, there was a um, relatively new legal clinic that was being held at the elementary schools in my town for um, families who were from the schools, who were struggling with poverty, and who needed legal help. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, it's my neighbors. It is a generalist clinic, which was the tradition that I came out of in legal aid as a generalist. Um, but they said a lot of what people needed was um, advice around child support and domestic violence protective orders and divorces and unemployment cases um, and problems with debts and creditors. And I was like, this, this is what I did at legal aid. So it was both like kind of fit in my expertise. I didn't have to travel because it was very close to home. Um, I could both, both I would get to meet with an individual person in a clinic. And I would know that as a general matter, I was literally doing something for my neighbors. I mean, that's a big deal for me, like for my neighbors. And literally I went in the first time I went to the clinic and I met with somebody. I was talking about trying to exchange papers with them. And, and I said, well, let me see where you're, you know, where you live, if it would be easy for me to get something to you. And he lived around the corner. So I was like, literally my neighbors. Um, so that just felt very grounded to me. And because it was a clinic, and I traditionally have always, in legal aid, I didn't like clinics. I didn't, I didn't want to staff them. I didn't want to work in them because I wanted to go all in on a case. Once I met a client, I wanted to go all in and go the long haul. Um, but in this moment, it was exactly the right thing for me to kind of get back on the horse. Be like, I will go to a clinic. And I will... Um, agree to be there from, you know, noon to two. And I will talk with whoever comes in. And my job that day is to give that person a really excellent experience of meeting with a stranger, bringing a legal problem, and trying to figure out what happened next. 
Like I wasn't trying to solve the world or solve their whole case. I just, my job that day was to do an excellent interview that made them feel valued and that tried to help them figure out what next is possible. That was literally two weeks before the pandemic shut down. (laughs) And everything changed. Well, it changed, but it changed in a way that suited where I was at and what I could do. Because suddenly a huge issue for people from my neighbors in my town became unemployment compensation. And here I was, an expert in unemployment compensation cases, which is not that common and frankly, my whole state has been struggling to um, to redevelop expertise that used to exist. Uh, and um, so this clinic said, wait, you know unemployment cases? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I actually know them pretty well. Yeah, and I actually love them and I think they're great. And also I can't go anywhere. I can't travel. Right. So suddenly my whole, what if a case gets scheduled while I'm traveling problem disappeared. Um, everything with an unemployment compensation case is either over the phone or in writing and has always has been that way for decades. So it was suddenly I was just perfectly positioned to use my knowledge in a way that I was emotionally prepared to use in a place that was suddenly a dire need that were relatively few people who could meet it. Yeah, it's ironic that this, the situation with COVID that has hindered so many f- things, you know, both personally and professionally, actually seems to have facilitated you doing this work. Absolutely. It's kind of kind of ironic. Absolutely. And because because my consulting work slowed down initially, it's it's come back to life, but it initially it slowed down quite a bit. So I had time um, and I wasn't how do I put this? I hadn't been doing unemployment for a while, so I had to relearn some things, but relearning meant I wasn't making any assumptions. And a whole bunch of brand new rules came down for unemployment. It's different in a lot of ways during the pandemic than it's ever been before. And because I had to relearn anyways, it was easier for me to learn those new rules. It it positioned me a little bit to be open to the new. Many of us assume that getting unemployment benefits is a relatively straightforward process. Why would someone need a lawyer? Lish told us about three cases she handled that illustrate how tricky an unemployment benefits request can get and how the pandemic threatened to overwhelm the whole system. So I had a client who got fired um, because right when the pandemic shutdown happened, she got into a pretty bad argument with her boss and... So she got fired for that and then was literally being denied unemployment at a time where she could not go out and get a new job because her field was daycare and every daycare was shut down. And so she and she was, um, you know, essentially doing distance learning at home with her kids. And if she hadn't been fired, she would have been furloughed from her daycare center and gotten unemployment benefits. So... um, (laughs) So everybody said she can't get benefits because she got fired and then she had a hearing and and we lost. I helped at the hearing and we lost the hearing. And the whole point of unemployment benefits is to make sure people eat and have shelter while they're looking for a new job. And to this client's credit, she kept saying, I don't understand. There's a rule that says if you're home with your kids, you can get unemployment. And I was like, yeah, but. No, I think you can. I think you can't. And I was calling other people in town. They were all like, no, I don't think you can. No, no, no. Because she got fired. And the client kept saying, I don't understand why. Tell me why. And then I would go back to the rule and I'd be like, yeah, I don't understand why either. 
I've read the rule. I think you should get unemployment. And she's like, well, why aren't I getting it? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, But it was such a new rule. Nobody and, and nobody knew how the rule worked or what it really meant or what it was intended to mean. Everything was happening so fast. But because of her, she just kept saying, well, I don't understand. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, and again, that's about being oriented to the client's experience and treating her like she has value. And she's a smart enough person to read the obvious rule that she's seeing in the newspapers and say to me, the expert lawyer, what you're saying doesn't make sense. So that then I could say back to her, oh, my God, you're right. And so we just kept making phone calls and making phone calls and making phone calls. And finally, somebody at unemployment said, you're right. You are eligible if you're home with kids and you cannot go to work. And so she got benefits. And so it's a weird one because I did a hearing, but I lost the hearing. <laughs> um, but I felt good about it. I felt like I did the best job I possibly could. And um, and I got all my competitive like trial juices flowing again. And I enjoyed it. And I was reminded what I liked about the work. And the client felt like she was heard and treated as a person with value. And I listened to her between the two of us working together, we were able to get our benefits. Uh, and so I kind of love that case because it's an example of how it's 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 not just about like winning the litigation. It's about the whole picture. And then I had another client who right about the same time who got fired shortly before the pandemic shutdown started and she was denied unemployment benefits. Um, and I appealed. But I mean, I um, took the case to appeal and she had kids who were home um, doing school. But because she had been fired, she wasn't able to get benefits, even though it was impossible to get a new job. Um, so exactly the person unemployment is supposed to help. And so with her, we were doing two things because of this other client saying, but why not? But why not? Then I turned to this client and I said, yeah, but why not? She should get benefits too. But also she never should have been denied benefits in the first place. She should have been able to win alone. Like she had great documentation. She explained her situation. It's just really hard to get listened to. It's just really right. hard to get heard. And so I walk in the room, I'm a lawyer, I've got experience. Like people listen to me more, even when they shouldn't, they do. And so I, I did a written appeal for her. Uh, and just laid it out. But I laid out her evidence. We actually won the appeal, um, and and she was able to get her benefits. And then the third case I've done, mm, the third case, a client lost her job, clearly pandemic-related, applied, couldn't get through to apply for benefits for like a month. Like you just couldn't get through. On the, the computer system crashed, the phones crashed, historic numbers of people asking for it. So it took her about a month to get through, but she got through. She got her benefits, and a couple months later, she said, hey, how come I can't get benefits from the day I lost my job? Because you guys were the ones who said I couldn't get through. And they said, oh, you should ask to have it backdated. So she asked to have it backdated, and somebody in unemployment made an administrative, a clerical error, and entered something that caused the computer to say, you were never eligible for benefits, which is just wrong. Um, and you now owe us $11,000, and we're taking all your old benefits back send us $11,000, which terrified her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it would terrify me. <laughs> terrify anybody. Right. So, um, so we filed a request for a hearing. We filed a request to have it fixed. <sighs> what she has gotten is a notice that says, you were overpaid. You owe us money. 
the amount of your overpayment is zero. I'm not kidding. So the she doesn't owe money anymore. Yes. Um, but she's still you're still working on the benefits. So money is appearing in her account from unemployment. She's not getting any notices that explain it. There's no notices to say we're sorry, we screwed up, we were wrong, nothing. Um, just a notice that says you owe us money, the amount is zero, and money is appearing in her account. Which she's a little scared to spend because she doesn't trust these folks anymore. But she's going to spend it for shelter and food, right? Um, and what I can't figure out, what I'm still trying to figure out, is whether or not they ever actually granted her the backdating that they that was the thing she asked for that started this whole mess in the first place. So in case it didn't become apparent, I am totally engaged in these cases. It feels like once you sort of get your feet wet and meet the person maybe and and start, you know, taking the first steps, it seems like you're you're all in. I, I'm locked in totally. Is that something that you think is a common thing that people when they start to do some of these cases that it sort of hooks them and then it that carries them through? If it's the right fit, right? If it's the right fit and it's a supportive program, yeah. So we just did the vets episode and Matt Kaplan was like, I went to a clinic and now I lead a team of 15 lawyers at Cooley doing this work. Like if it's the right fit, then yeah, you just kind of lock in and you go for it. But I think what's hard sometimes is the way we talk about pro bono in this country is too generic. So we're like, you should do pro bono. And we don't admit that there's a right fit question. And then so someone tries something and it doesn't work. And they're like, yeah, pro bono is not for me, as opposed to saying, well, try something. And if it doesn't work, think about what about that opportunity wasn't right. And what might it look like to find a different opportunity that fixes those problems? Right. And to keep trying also, keep trying. If, even if, if it's not a positive first, second or even third experience. <laughs> I mean, the analogy that I'm thinking of right off the bat is sports. You know, I played a lot of sports growing up. You're, you're going to try two or three different sports before you find the one that you finally like and end up pursuing, you know, or that becomes like a hobby or a passion. But if, if you were to play, let's say, golf as your first sport and you didn't like it or weren't good at it, you wouldn't go, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do sports. So that's anymore. what I did. <laughs> I'm not, you know, and maybe golf is a bad example because it's oh, really no. hard to be good at golf. No, I was just laughing because I'm like, if you say so, I, my primary sport was reading a book under a tree, but... <laughs> Speed reading, then it's a sport. And I did eventually find racquetball as a sport that I liked. But but yeah, I think, and so I, that in some ways is the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was because I wanted to have a different kind of conversation about pro bono where we named the fact that there are really different ways of doing it and um, that... While, yes, I do think we have an ethical, professional responsibility to find a way to do pro bono, you're going to have to figure out what the what the right fit is for you. And I do think it's the job of the nonprofits and the pro bono councils to to show you as many different kinds of possibilities as well as possible and to name for you how this one's different from that one. And I would love to see us have that kind of conversation in pro bono work where we say this has to be a project that works for the client. So it has to give services that are actually of value to the client that are high quality. It has to work for the pro bono lawyer, it has to fit your 
talents and interest and capacity, and it has to fit for the nonprofit program that's supporting it, where they feel like they're actually making some kind of big level community impact by facilitating this work. That's what we should be looking for in pro bono, but it's going to be really different for every person. Is there any advice that you would have for, you know, either individual attorneys who are thinking about pro bono or even for legal aid lawyers and how they sort of facilitate pro bono or even for big firms? Is there anything that you would say to any of those of those people? Yeah, I think that the 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 big picture matters and that the devil's in the details. So at the same time, it matters from a big picture perspective, where are we trying to get to? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? And you and people should think about that so that they have a, a sense of why they're doing what what they're doing, and um, and then pay attention to how do you, as an individual, what is the best way for you to contribute, and that's going to be really specific to you. And and I say that because I think. You know, the whole the whole legal aid lawyer thing. And again, I think legal aid lawyers as a field is matured. And I think many people were more mature than me the day we walked in the door. Um, so if I could go back and say to my 23-year-old self, you know, get off your high horse. If, if there is a systemic change that needs to be made, why wouldn't you incorporate people who have money and power and skill to be on the team to make the change? Why would you exclude them? That doesn't seem to help the big picture goal. And if you had a bad experience with one volunteer lawyer, that doesn't mean that person is a bad lawyer or a screw up or doesn't care or can't contribute. It means either something wasn't working about your program that you were doing as a nonprofit and you could make it better and learn from that experience. Um, or it just wasn't the right fit for that person and treat that person well. Like in the same way that I cared so much about the client experience, and I still do care very much about the client experience, I think bringing some of that um, client-centered care to caring about the experience of the lawyers, all the lawyers in doing the work matters and it, it makes me think about, you know, maybe the real point of pro bono work is to create just a generally humane society <laughs> where all of us are functioning at our peak capacity and valuing each other. And so valuing the pro bono lawyers and valuing the nonprofit lawyers and valuing the clients all similarly is sort of key to, to how we get there. In, in terms of finding your niche, I do think it's a conversation with yourself about where are you at. Um, are you looking for an experience that's different from your day-to-day -day work? Or are you looking for an experience that builds on the expertise in your day-to-day -day work? Um, do you want to be talking to people? Or do you want to be writing? Or do you want variation? And we often say, is there an issue you care very passionately about? But as I said earlier, there's issues I care very passionately about I would never do pro bono on because it's it's not the right fit for what I want doing the work to be like. Uh, so, so holding those two things in your mind at the same time. What is a thing I care about 
and and what do I want the physical act of doing the work to feel like, both intellectually and then also, um, you know, is it writing? Is it advocating? Is it drafting? Is it talking? Like, um, and, and so in terms of making the next step, I think, well, I do think the next step is figuring out yourself. And sometimes you won't know. I mean, I've told several stories in this conversation where I didn't know something about myself until someone asked me something and I had to respond. So it might take some false starts to answer some of the questions for yourself or to test out whether the answers were true or not. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, You know, if you do a two-hour clinic and it turns out you hated it, you don't have to go back. And you still did two hours of pro bono. And you learned something about who you are so don't do don't do the guilt and shame route because that's useless to everyone try to learn from every experience what didn't i like what didn't work why didn't it work what would i like to see differently and then take advantage of your resources your pro bono council your bar association the web um your colleagues um and uh once you have a sense of what you think your niche might be, then go look for something that fits that and try it out. And if it doesn't work, don't walk away. Just ask, what could have been better? What would I have liked to have be different? Where can I find the better different that I want? Because I promise you it's out there. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.